gone over the first West Virginia mine war from a narrative perspective, it's time to dig in and analyze it. Why did this class war happen? Well, there are a lot of reasons. One major cause for the first West Virginia mine war was the complete devaluation of human lives in the mines and the unsafe conditions that the miners faced. Mine operators valued a mule more than a man because you could replace a man easy. This attitude was exemplified by the complete lack of safety standards in the West Virginia mines. Coal mining was, and in many cases still is, an incredibly dangerous profession, and many viewed coal mining, injury, and death as synonymous. Many miners died in roof falls and similar accidents, but explosions with higher death tolls for single events usually attracted more media attention. The Mononga explosion in 1907 was the deadliest mine explosion in the United States at the time. In 1910, the Bureau of Mines was formed to develop safer mining techniques, but the Bureau lacked the power to enforce these safety regulations in West Virginia, so mining continued to be an incredibly dangerous profession. Also, while mining was dangerous in general, West Virginia's coal mines were significantly less safe than mines in other states. In the 10-year period between 1902 and 1912, the death rate in the mines in West Virginia was 68.4% higher than in Pennsylvania, 87.8% higher than in Illinois, and 97.6% higher than in Ohio. It is no coincidence that the mines in Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Ohio were unionized, while the mines in West Virginia were not. So unionization proved to be, quite literally, life insurance for the coal miner. So it makes sense that miners would push for unionization, as it may literally save their lives. In addition to these poignant safety concerns, miners may have also been pushed to unionize by their low quality of life. Their employers were also their landlords, and in many cases, they could only purchase their goods from the company store, often with company script. Miners just existed. That's the way it was. They were often told they would receive raises only for their wages to be cut soon after. They had very little autonomy and very little money, and they were often subjected to a great deal of violence. In 1912, the United Mine Workers of America met with the coal operators of the Central Competitive Field, and they had initially asked for an increase of 10 cents per ton of coal and 20% increase for the wages of day labor. They settled for an increase of 5 cents per ton and 5.26% more for day laborers. But many mine operators in West Virginia refused to honor this agreement, including Quinn Morton, the chairman of the Operators' Scale Committee for Pink Creek. Also, miners at Cabin Creek had worked under the mine guard system for eight years, and by this point, they were fed up with the system. Bargaining with operators was producing few, if any, results, and mine operators were hostile to the union and would often fire, evict, and blacklist workers for joining the union. At this same time, miners were often gaslit by the media. For example, one reporter, Charles Frederick Carter, wrote that West Virginia miners had higher annual earnings than miners in any other state. He also wrote that there were no guards whatever on Paint Creek until sometime after the outrages began. Given that miners went on strike in a large part due to their comparatively lower wages and the abuses they claimed to experience at the hands of the mine guards, one must question the plausibility of this statement. Why would miners go on strike over low wages and in opposition to the mine guard system if they were so well paid and no such system existed? Either the miners were delusional or Carter's reporting was less than accurate. But whatever the causes of the first West Virginia mine war, the effects were clear to Charles Frederick Carter. Carter estimated that mine operators lost $2 million in business, West Virginia taxpayers lost $400,000, and miners lost $1,500,000 in wages for the time that they were on strike. Fortunately for the miners, they were able to recoup some of those supposedly lost wages. The United Mine Workers Union gained some recognition as a bargaining agent and formed a new district, District 29, in 1913. The union was also 
without able to secure a minor increase in miners' wages, with miners making 29 cents per ton and day laborers making from $1 to $2.50 per day, depending on the nature of their labor. In today's currency, this would be equivalent to about $26.29 to $67.73 per day, or about $2.91 to $7.30 per hour, still well below a living wage. But the battle was far from over. Laws against the union were still on file for years. For example, the Red Man Act allowed West Virginia's governor to imprison or exile anyone he found suspicious. This was often used against coal miners, especially those who tried to unionize. Also, even though a senatorial investigation was conducted in 1913, it found few concrete conclusions. Senator William S. Kenyon advocated for the government ownership of the mines to avoid any further trouble, but obviously coal operators weren't keen to take him up on this suggestion. Things after 1913 continued much the same as they had before 1912, so it's hardly surprising that this first West Virginia mine war was not the last.